Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. This Christmas season, we invite you to look deeper into the incredible covenants God made with His people in Scripture. Tune into our current series, Gift Wrapped, From Longing to Lavish, to discover God's unwavering promises to meet the ultimate longings of our heart and ultimately renew our hope with the brilliant truth of the gospel. Well, today we get to continue our series called Gift Wrap from Longing to Lavished. Um, if you've been with us, you've been seeing that we've been looking at the promises of God throughout the Old Testament to his people. And we've been looking at God's word and how it is a faithful word to his people. And these covenants that God has made, it, it fulfills our deepest longings in our lives for security, for love, and even for relationship. First, we looked at the covenant of God with Noah. Then we looked at the covenant of God with Abraham, the promise of God that he would make Abraham's name great and all the nations would be blessed in Abraham. That's why we bring the gospel across the world. That's why we go in mission is to reach the peoples for the name of Jesus Christ. God has a passion to be worshipped and for his name to be made famous among all peoples for his glory. That is the Lord. He is about his name and about his glory. And so we've seen that God is going to do what he will in order that his name will be proclaimed and all the nations of the world will be blessed through Abraham. Then we looked at the covenant of God with Moses. And God brought himself to his people Israel and he established them as his chosen people. And today we're going to be looking at uh, the second to the last covenant in our series. We're going to be looking at God's covenant with David. David, the greatest king to ever rule Israel. David, who many of us know of his fame with Goliath and slaying the giant. David, who God brought from obscurity to be a king. This is about God's covenant with David, specifically God's covenant that he would raise up a king who would rule and reign forever from the line of David. And we find that in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Will you please turn there with me? 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now, as we turn there, I want to give you a, a little more insight about what's going on here uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 7. What's happened is, is that the nation of Israel throughout the history of Israel has been in turmoil, has been fighting against different enemies. We see that they were in bondage and slavery in Egypt. We see that they continue to be invaded by different nations. And what has just happened is that the nation of Israel has been settled in Jerusalem and King David is on his throne and God has caused it to be at peace with all of the nations that are around David. And what we see is King David has built himself a home, a palace, a beautiful place where he is living and he is at peace and he is at rest. And as David is at peace and at rest, he starts to think about God. He starts to think about what he can do for God. And that's where we join our text today in 2 Samuel 7, chapter 1. Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in the house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. 
So what we see is King David, he is sitting in this beautiful palace, he is ruling in this land, and he looks out and he sees that the Ark of the Covenant, which is the symbol of God's presence that has been with Israel all the way from the exodus of Moses, where God establishes his presence in the tabernacle, is residing in a tent. So David, he logically thinks through and he says, well, I have this great and awesome house Yet God, the presence of God, or the place where God dwells, is located within a tent. And David starts to think about the logic of that, and he starts to think that he should create himself a home for God, and he should create God a great temple. He says it in the presence of Nathan. Now we know Nathan later on in the life of David. He's the one who confronts David in his sin with Bathsheba, but Nathan really isn't a very well-known prophet at this time. But Nathan, who is the prophet of God, he says, well... You know, what's in your heart is good. The Lord is with you. So Nathan signs off on this action as well. And so David, you can imagine, starts to think through the plans of building God a house. But then we see as we continue on in the text that this was not God's plan. Let's continue reading. But the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom am I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? It's really interesting here because as we think about the actions of David, I can put myself in his place. You start looking around at all the blessings that God has given you, this beautiful home that you've built for yourself. You look at the Ark of the Covenant and you think, it's in this tent made of skin. Why would we have God's presence, the thing that represents God, sitting in this tent? Let's build him a magnificent house. Yet it's interesting because David's intuitions and his instincts got it wrong. See, what he was doing is that there was a tradition in the Near Eastern kingdoms throughout history uh, that the kings would actually build temples for their gods. And what this would do is it would cause the god to reside with them, to be with them, and it would cause them to have great blessing and, and a continued kingdom. And so what David is doing here, he's thinking with the logic of the community and of the society. And it's interesting how God comes back here. What he does is he comes to Samuel, which Samuel thinks this sounds like a good idea as well. As we think about human logic, as we think about the idea of building God a house, it makes a lot of sense to us. But David wasn't considering the words of God. And that's where God takes him back to. God says, listen, over the last 300 years of the nation of Israel, at any of these times, I could have told any of the people leading the nation to build me a house of cedar. But I didn't. He's also not thinking back to the idea that Moses and, and, and the people of Israel were given specific commands by God to build a tabernacle where his covenant would dwell, a place that could be taken and moved with them wherever they needed to go. You see, what God is doing here is he's saying, I'm not a God who's just going to stay here with just the people of Israel. I am a God who is expansive, and I am going to work and continue to move in the rest of the world. And David wants to build him this house, which is a beautiful desire, but is not according to the plans of God. You see, the reality is, as we look at this text, that David has a good desire, and he's thoughtful in considering God. But David's plans 
are not the plans that would bring God the most glory. David's plans are not the plans that will bring God the most glory. We can do that sometimes, can't we? Now, I've said time and time before that God has given us our minds and our intellects. God has given us our emotions, and they are good. Yet, they are not above the Word of God. We can never let them govern our lives. We have to look to the Word of God to govern our lives. And so we will do the same thing. We will make projects or things that we can do for God. And maybe we're not actually spending time in the presence of God. Maybe we're so busy doing things for God that we forget to be with God. And we forget to listen to his word and obey his commands. Maybe we're serving really, really well in a bunch of different areas in the church. But there's sin within our lives that we need to get taken care of. You see, what we see here is that God desires our hearts. God desires our obedience. God desires for us to listen to his words. And that's what he does to David here. Here's a reality that you may have not been told before or you may have been told before. It's something that I wrestled with this week uh, because the big idea of today is that God doesn't need our work for his glory. That's the first point within it. God doesn't need our work for his glory. And that's couched within this idea that we can't serve God better than he can serve us. That God doesn't need our work for his glory. Now, it's really interesting because I speak week after week after week about our lives and our life's purpose being about the glory of God. And we worship and we serve him and we obey him to bring him glory. And this is 100% true. But what we see and what we need to know is that the God that we serve is self-sufficient. The God that we serve just because he is deserves all praise and glory. God, the God that we serve, even if he wouldn't have created the world, even if he wouldn't have created humanity, he would still be the greatest possible thing. He would still be worthy of all praise, and he would be self-sufficient. The Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they are contained within themselves, and they are self-sufficient. God is the greatest thing possible, and he does not need our service in order for him to get the best glory. Now, I'll caveat this for just a minute. I am not saying we are not called to serve God. I am not saying that we are not called to live our lives to bring him glory and worship him. I am saying, unlike other pagan religions of this time, God does not need us in order for him to be the greatest thing and to be self-sufficient and to be glorified. Uh, my brother uh, in Christ and pastor out in Minnesota, uh, Pastor John Piper, puts it this way in his really good Advent devotional called The Dawning of Indestructible Joy. Uh, if you haven't picked up an Advent devotional, uh, grab this one. I mean, you're a few days late, but you can super read. Uh, they're really short. It's only a 90-page book, but it's awesome. And he says this as he's talking, to Mark, talking about Mark 10, verse 45 of Jesus. He says, this is why Jesus says what he says in Mark 10, 45. The son of man came not to be served, but to serve. What a horrendous mistake it would be if we heard Jesus call to the servant of all in verse 44 as a call to serve him. It is not. It is a call to learn how to be served by him. Don't miss this. This is the heart of Christianity. This is what sets our faith off from all other major religions. Our God does not need our service, nor is he glorified by recruits who want to help him out. Our God is so full and so self-sufficient and so overflowing in power and life and joy that he glorifies himself by serving us. 
He does this by taking on humanity and seeking us out, then telling us that he did not come to get our service, but to be our servant. He came not to be served, but to serve. He is a, here is a general truth to ponder and believe. Every time Jesus commands something for us to do, it is his way of telling us he wants to serve us. This is how. The path of obedience is the place where Christ meets us as our servant to carry our burdens and give us power. Because in reality, the commands of God and the ways of God and the ways we're told to live in this world and holiness is not possible without the power of God and the spirit of God. Do you see how this kind of works? God still calls us, but he calls us to love us and serve us. Yet at the same time, he calls us to obey and worship him. And what happens within that is we're called to this obedience. We're given a task that we can never do on our own. So in order for this to happen, God gives us the Holy Spirit. God gives us the ability and the power to praise, worship, serve, and obey him. And in obeying him, we have now been served by God because he gives us the power to do it. And all of this ultimately brings God the most glory possible, and it brings us great pleasure and great joy. The illustration that I can think of, it's going to fall apart a little bit because it's a human illustration, but uh, this Friday, I had this huge mound of trash to take out to the road. I mean, we had all kinds of boxes, and we had all kinds of trash, and I needed to take all of this stuff out to the road. So I get up early Friday morning, I go out to the garage, I open the garage door, and I start toting all this trash out to the road. Well, my little son, Dominic, who's three years old, he comes out, he, he runs out in his skivvies, he's like, Dad, can I? help you? I'm like, son, you're not dressed for it. Uh, so he goes back inside and his mom, uh, who's amazing, she puts his little uh, snow outfit on him and he comes outside. He's like, daddy, can I help you? I'm like, all right, son, I'll let you help me. You know, it's that moment where you're like, I really could get this done a lot faster on my own. <laughs> and then my son proceeded to help me carry boxes. He picked up one end, I picked up the other and we carried it to the road <laughs> very, very slowly. See, I could have taken all those boxes on my own. I didn't truly need him to help me to get it to the road. Yet within that, something happened. See, I could have ignored that and I could have said, no, I'm just doing it on my own. I would have broke my son's heart. I wouldn't have had an opportunity for him to get joy through serving with me. And then also, it built relationship. Isn't that beautiful? God gives us the opportunity to serve and worship and praise him. He doesn't need us, but he wants us. And that's what makes our salvation and our call as the church even more beautiful than if God needed us to do it. The nations are going to be blessed. The word of God will be proclaimed to the ends of the earth, no matter if we do it or not. Yet, we're called to, we're called to obedience, we're called to bring his name glory, and we get to, we get to be in relationship with him, we get to bring him glory, and we get to find the joy that it is to preach the gospel of Jesus. It's a beautiful thing that he is a God who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And so we see David has a beautiful idea and a beautiful plan that he hadn't considered God's word. 
And what we see next is just shocking that God came to serve us. Second, we see that God works to bring us rest. 2 Samuel 7, 8. Now therefore this you shall say to my servant David. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be my prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. God starts out here, he says, now therefore, listen, you shall say to my servant David, he's talking to Nathan and he's telling him what to tell David. He uses this title of my servant David. Now this word my servant, whenever it's used, it's a term used in speeches by the Lord to those who are honored, faithful, fathers in the face, prophets of Israel. It's to Israel themselves and to the Messiah himself. So he's talking to David as this enduring term of my servant. He sees David in his desire, yet he redirects that desire, and he's teaching him something about himself here. He says, thus says the Lord of hosts. Now this this phrase and this terminology of the name of God is powerful because since the first time it's used in 1 Samuel 1, 3, it's always at moments of solemn importance. In case you haven't realized, this text is one of the most important texts in all of the scripture. This text is one of the most important texts in all of the scripture. And God comes to David and and he starts to talk to him. And he talks to him as the Lord of hosts and, and David as his servant. And he takes him back. The first thing he does is he causes him to look back and see his faithfulness in the past. He says, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. That's powerful, isn't it? We think of David as this little shepherd boy, the youngest in his family, the one who was out in the field and wasn't even worthy enough to be called when the prophet came to anoint the new king, yet he's the one who God chose. We see David, this shepherd boy, who through the power of God fought off lions and bears. This shepherd boy who one day went and to visit his brothers in this battle and there was this nine foot tall giant who is proclaiming obscenities against God and dishonoring his name. And this shepherd boy said, uh-uh, that's not happening. Stands up, takes a sling in the power of God, snipers this Goliath right between the eyes, knocks him down on the ground, takes his sword and chops off his head. That David. And that David is brought by the power of God from obscurity as a shepherd boy to the greatest king that Israel would ever have. What a story David has, isn't it? What a beautiful story from obscurity to a servant of God and for the plan of God. This brings to mind to me a text, one of my favorite in all of scripture. I would recommend memorizing it because it really speaks to who we were before Christ and what God does in us. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose. Those are beautiful words. But God chose. How many of you are glad for those words? Come on, that is powerful. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Why did he do this? So that no human being may boast in the presence of God, and because of him you are in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. 
so that no one would stand before him and say, I did something, I did this. And that the one who boasts may boast in the Lord alone. You see, what we see here is that if you are in Christ today, you have been brought from a place of darkness, of wickedness, of going after the ways of your flesh, of going after the things that your flesh desires, and only going after the things that your nature draws you into, which is sin. And God broke in. He made you alive. He made you a new creation. He made you holy in Christ. He resurrected you from the dead of your spiritual walk. And now you are in Jesus Christ. A miracle has happened in your life and you are new in him. And that's not because of anything you did at all. It's all because of his greatness, of his power, of his action, of his movement, of his glory. It is for him. And he did it in us. Think about that this Christmas. Remember the past. We always have to remember the past and the faithfulness of God in order to look to the future and think about what God has in store for us because our plans don't always line up with God's plans. And sometimes we have to look back and say, I didn't get it then, but now I see his faithfulness and I look to the future trusting in him because right now, the place I'm in, I don't understand it. And I would do things differently if I were God, yet I'm gonna remember his faithfulness in the past. Then he tells him to look to the future. He says, I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones on the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. For the first time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. God promises David a name, a place, peace, and rest. God promises him that there will be an eternal peace. There will be an eternal rest. God's talking in terms of forever here, as we'll see, because he's going to talk about an eternal kingdom. He declares the work he's done in the past. He says, listen, I'm going to continue that through the future. I am a faithful God. I've been faithful since the very beginning, and I've continued to make these covenants, and I have kept them. David's reminded of the work that God is doing in his life and is going to continue to do. David is reminded that he needs God. In the past, he needed God. In the future, he needs God. And he's fully reliant on God. As we've seen in all of these covenants, they're established by God, they're maintained by God, and they're fulfilled by God. The story of the Bible is the story of God moving to save a people for himself in love in order that his name would get great, great glory in order that he would be worshipped among all peoples and all nations. And in that, we are going to find a rest and a peace in God. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior today, and you don't know rest, and you don't know peace, and you have turmoil within your heart, and you have turmoil within your life, and you, you have this place where you go when you lay down at nighttime where there's just a churning inside of you and an emptiness inside of you and a, and a place where there is no rest, listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30. 
Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you don't know Christ as your Savior today, today you can know rest. Today you can know peace in Jesus. Today you can be forgiven of your sins. What you need to do is realize that you are still disobeying, dishonoring, and an enemy of God. And you must give your life to him. You must confess your sins to him. You must say that that Jesus is now my Lord and I live for him. And then you walk in that and you live for him. I don't care if you went to church your entire life and you check that box every single week. If you never surrendered your life to Jesus, you're going to be somebody who sits in a church chair every single week thinking you know Jesus as your Lord who ends up in hell. We have to continue to think through that and remember that. Have we surrendered our lives to Jesus? Have we taken that step of faith to say he's Lord of my life? If you have, then you are secured in Christ. You are are firm in Christ and no one can take that away from you. That's the beauty of salvation, but, but the, the importance is to remember and to always ask ourselves, does my life look like Jesus, or did I pray a prayer when I was six years old, and my life looks like the rest of the world, and I go to church just because that's why I did it, because that's what I did when I grew up, and my parents told me to do it. We have to ask ourselves, have we given our lives to Christ? Have we surrendered our lives to him? Because God has given us this beautiful thing called the gospel. It's good news. It means that you can be saved. It means that you can know him. It's estimated that 40 to 50% of people who sit in church pews or church chairs on Sunday morning don't know Jesus. So we have to ask ourselves, is our faith real or are we relying on our parents' faith? Is our faith real or are we relying on our good deeds that we've done for God? Is our faith real or are we somebody who says, well, uh, uh, I've always prayed. Boy, have you surrendered your life to Jesus? Have you given your life to him? Have you made him Lord of your life? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. But then if you are a believer, you can remember that there is a rest to come, an eternal rest, a Sabbath rest that we are promised in Hebrews that is rest with God where there is no weeping, there is no crying, there is no pain, there is no death. It's a beautiful new world that Christ brings us into and we get to be with him. We reside with him. We rest in him. Finally, we see this beautiful truth that God provides a forever king to serve us. Look at 2 Samuel 7, 11. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall uh, shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Here's the covenant. Here's the promise of God. He says, someone's going to raise up after you in your line of your seed. Same terminology that we see with Abraham, who is going to rule and reign forever. And he's going to build me a house. Now, in the short term, this is actually fulfilled right afterwards by David's son, Solomon. Yet Solomon's kingdom did not last forever. Solomon was the one who built the temple. He built the house of God, and God had chosen for Solomon to do that. Yet Solomon's kingdom did not last forever. So we have to look to the future. We have to look to a king who would rule and reign forever. 
And this is the fulfillment in Jesus Christ himself. Jesus is the one. As we look here in verse 13, there are three claims concerning Jesus that Jesus himself proclaims in the New Testament. He says he would build a temple. Second, he says he called, he claimed to possess an eternal throne. And finally, he claimed to possess an imperishable kingdom. Jesus said, you know those prophecies they're talking about. That's me. In fact, we see this promise to King David in Matthew 1. Verse 1 calls Jesus the son of David. He is of the line. That's why they went to Bethlehem, the house and lineage of David. Yet Joseph was not Jesus' father. God was Jesus' father. And that's what it says in the text as well. It says, he'll be my son. Now, it is interesting because in order to explain the history of Israel, there's got to be something within this because Israel, after Solomon, just goes down the drain. They start getting attacked and they start getting captured and they split into two kingdoms and all these things happen. So the text continues. He says, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. He says, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before me. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And this is what we see happen. Dynasties removed from David disobey God. His blessing is off of them. He allows them to be killed by nations around them. He allows them uh, to be punished. And then he, but he continues to keep his promise to the nation of Israel, to the line of David. And the prophecies that we see throughout the Old Testament, specifically in Isaiah... They are all fulfilled in Jesus Christ himself. So even though the kings fail, even though the human kings fail, God is faithful. Hey, this is the story of the Bible. Humanity will always fail. Humanity will always fail, but God is faithful. You look at the greatest heroes of the faith and they all fail. David committed adultery and he murdered a guy. Then he hid it and covered it up. He failed. Yet he's called a man after God's own art. He is called a, a, the greatest king ever to live. And God did not take the kingdom away from him. He kept his promise and he's faithful. And that king would be fulfilled. That forever king, which Isaiah 9, 6 through 7 talks about. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful, yes, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there shall be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The eternal king is Jesus. The eternal king is the one who was born on Christmas Day. 
The eternal king is the one who lived a very humble existence as a carpenter's son who did not come into his full ministry until three years before his death, who did miraculous things throughout the nation, who did miraculous things in Israel, yet he was convicted of crime he didn't do. He was hung on a cross as a criminal. His blood was poured out. He was whipped and tortured, yet he died. And in his last breath, he said, Father, for Forgive them, for they know not what they do. It is finished. What was finished is that the reign of death, the reign of destruction, the reign of sin is over. And Jesus Christ now has made a way in himself to be made at peace, to be made right, to be made perfect with the Lord Jesus through surrendering your life to him. That is why we celebrate Christmas. We celebrate Christmas because of Jesus Christ. Because it wasn't a baby who was born and then killed by Herod at two years old. No, God resurrected. God saved him from that. It wasn't a baby who was born and lived a perfect life. It was a baby who was born, lived a perfect life, died on a cross, resurrected from the grave, and is going to return for his people because he is faithful to his promises. He will sit on the throne. He will reign forever, and we will be with him as his people. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.